Batmen and Batwomen. This episode is all about bats. And it is doubly exciting because it is the first in-person, socially distanced episode that I, David Oakes, have recorded since, rightly or wrongly, Britain left its supposedly strict pandemic lockdown. And it is riddled with all the meteorological complications that people recording podcasts over the telephone lines do not have to face. But to make up for the rain that breaks this two-part interview, we are topical, pertinent, and we are one with the zeitgeist. As bats remain unfortunately prominent in people's minds for their role in the transmission of COVID, and as we all too often look past any human culpability for the disease's rapid spread across the globe, Kate and I instead choose to barely mention the pandemic and prefer rather to highlight everything that is fascinating, incredible, unique and awe-inspiring about our planet's most prevalent mammal. So, without further ado, welcome to today's fascinating bat-focused episode with the answer to the question of what happens when you create a cross-hybridization of Harrison Ford and David Attenborough. This is Teresa Crowd, and this is Professor Kate Jones. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether crackers about quackers or bats about a flying rodent that's name can also be used as a slang adjective to for describe Oh, I've ruined it. That was that was the bit. <laughs> See, I can't I can't present either. You're an actor. <laughs> I know. I, people pay me you for this. <laughs> Um, I'll try that again. Uh, I'm not going to look at you. <laughs> whether crackers about quackers or bats about a flying rodent, its name can also be used as a slang adjective for being over-enthusiastically... It's not a rodent, though. Yes, that's why we do it. What is it? It's just a mammal, flying mammal. I know that. I know that. I know that. I wrote this last night. <laughs> whether, <laughs> whether crackers about quackers... Or bats about a flying mammal that's a name. Or What's bats. a quacker? Like a duck. I couldn't oh. think of a rhyme. I couldn't. I was. I literally spent two hours trying to think of. Because I wanted to say bats about bats. But it's. Crazy about chiropterans? I mean, that's great. <laughs> but I can't currently say ad- ad- adjective. No, that's true. <laughs> oh, okay, one more time. If I don't get it right, we'll just jump straight in. Okay. Where the crackers about quackers. Or... <laughs> I am not even looking at you. I'm not looking at you. Or bats about a flying mammal that's name can also be used as a slang adjective for being over-enthusiastically obsessed. I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. Today I am outside in North London. It is July. It is going to drizzle on us in a bit, probably. Um, but I've come to talk to someone who, up until last night, I didn't realise is allegedly Charles Darwin's eighth cousin. Six times removed. Okay. I think you probably are Charles Darwin's We're eighth cousin six times removed as We've well. We've so much in common. <laughs> because that relationship is so tenuous. Okay. But you can, if you go on Ancestry.com, trace it back to me. Did you discover, Did you go out to find out that you were? Or no. did someone come up to you and say... I went, on, I went on Ancestry.com in a kind of flurry of enthusiasm. As one does. 
with not much hope, to be honest, with a last name called Jones at finding anything that was useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, I've got some kind of famous Lord blah, blah, blah ancestor um, back in the mist of time. And at the minute you link to that person, there you are all these other else. people. It's and almost like nobility is in bread and lots of <laughs> Almost like that. Obviously, it's not like that because that then, would be weird. Well, then lots of other people have also done their their linking to that person. Sure. Uh, and partly because that person's got written records and stuff. So it's Richard Cope or something like that, and he's some kind of you know 18th century lord of something or other. Who knows? But he's related to um, the Wedgwoods and Charles Darwin. I didn't know anything of the Darwins, know anything about this, but somebody who claimed to be my long-lost cousin, emailed me on Ancestry.com and said, oh, I see that you are a professor at, at UCL, which I thought was a little bit stalky. A I, little I th- bit stalky. I thought my email might have started like that. <laughs> I was like, um... Right. And then he goes, did you know that your eighth cousin is Charles Darwin? You know, through this relationship that was very tenuous. So then I was like, yes. Do you th- feel that your life now working with ecology and biodiversity has now greater meaning because you've come down that <laughs> illustrious line? Well, I'm in one of the most famous genetics departments in the world, right, in our... Uh, in Sh- shall I finish UCL? your introduction and then everyone will know where you are? Oh. No, no, I mean, I, I was, I'm all up for diversions. In fact, if you want to say anything else, just interrupt me. I, but as soon as I've said this, I don't need to say anything more and I can just... Uh, <laughs> pr- I didn't mean to... You invited me to interrupt you. I did, you. I did. I, I've, I've even scripted it. <laughs> This is all controlled. Uh, right, so I'm here to talk to Professor Kate Jones. Do you want to be Dr. Jones or Professor Jones? Professor Jones. Jones. Okay, Professor Jones. Because Dr. Jones is like Indiana Jones and that's really cool. Okay, no, I know that was the reason I did my whole doctorate, but still. To become Indiana Jones? Well, to become Dr. Jones. Like, I was, I got taken to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of, no, Raiders of Lost Ark. Okay. When that doesn't have bats in about, it. No, but it's Temple was, of Doom where she holds it up like a towel. Yeah, that's wrong. Shouldn't touch bats like that. Um, <laughs> Dear Spielberg, <laughs> many thanks for your most recent production. Uh, I have Sorry, a few complaints. But where's your PPE? <laughs> um, no, I, I, uh, my brother, eldest brother, took me to see Raiders of Lost Ark when I was about eleven or twelve, when it came out. Anyway. Mm-hmm the cinema and it totally didn't breathe until about halfway through i was just you know harrison Ford was mo- one of the mo- was one of the most beautiful people on was. the outside <laughs> <laughs> in the world like if you look back at rose of lost ark hit i would amazing i would so i was totally blown away and also he was called dr jones and they kept you know dr jones you know <laughs> he was on adventure and you know he was running about and i just thought that's that's what i want to do i'm going to be doing that but then like david attenborough was also on the telly at the same time and then i was like i want to do that and be indiana jones so you wanted to cross the two you wanted to cross pollinate harrison ford with david attenborough to create some kind of mega adventure naturalist amazing and for you to embody that form yes that's a better introduction than i've written my, mine's just got the words environmental and biodiversical quite a lot in it. <laughs> Shall I see if we can get through the rest of the introduction? Yes, <laughs> this could take a while. Professor Kate Jones is a professor of ecology and biodiversity 
in the Centre for Biodiversity and Environmental Research at University College London, investigating, and I quote, the interface of ecological and human health to understand the impact of global land use and climate change on ecological and human systems, with a particular focus on emerging infectious diseases from animals. And that means, as well as being perfectly placed to talk to us about the origins of zoonotic diseases like COVID, she gets to play with one of my favourite animals, bats. That's the introduction. That's brilliant. That's it. I've got brilliant. nothing more to say. No, now we can just talk. Okay. Um, all right. First, first question. When I was at school, this is going to start with an anecdote. See, it is all about. So me. young that that was like yesterday. When I was at school yesterday, <laughs> uh, my primary school teacher came up to me uh, with a matchbox. Oh yeah. And I can't remember. I think I told you this in an email. I can't remember whether it was alive or dead. But inside it, with a little bit of cotton wool, there was a pipistrelle bat. <gasps> and from that moment, I must have been. Six or seven. So probably more than yesterday, like a year ago. Um, I've been obsessed with bats. So my question to you, Professor Dr. Kate Jones, Attenborough, Darwin. Darwin's eight cousins, cousins six times removed. Is, do you remember your first encounter with a bat? I do uh, very well, actually, because it had the kind of same effect on me as it had on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, an undergraduate at Leeds University, and so this I, is quite late then? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So about 18, 19, 20? Yeah, 18, 19, something like that. And um, there was a professor there who was, um, he, he did a whole module on bats. I was like, wow, I'm totally doing that. Because it was at one of the only kind of whole animal courses there were at least, because it was very biomechanical. Sure. So I did that, and then I got, I just learned how, learned how amazing they are. And um, the professor was had a couple of um, uh, you know research projects going, so I, I you know I signed up to to do one of these, and he went he it was going out to these bat boxes in North Yorkshire Moors, and he climbed up to the top of the bat box and looked in them. He was looking at to see if there were two two species of pipistrelle bats because we mm-hmm. didn't know uh, they were separate at the time. Um, and actually, it turns out they're really, really different from each other. We didn't know that. But he was kind of investigating that. And he climbs up to the top of the box and comes down with um, a handful of bats. And he puts Was one... he in PPE? No, this was before PPE. The pre, pre-PPE <laughs> days. <laughs> Pre-PPE. So he, um, he climbs down and then he just hands me this little baby, uh, little pipistrelle in my hand, who's totally asleep. It was like because he was in torpor mm-hmm. and um, you know he or she kind of spends a couple of minutes just like looking at me just going what the fuck <laughs> what is this who are you you know and then I warms up and flies off and I just thought that was really badass <laughs> I just thought wow these are really badass and they're just like totally secret they're secret things that nobody knows about and that's really I don't know un- understudied overlooked i thought that was brilliant so but how did you get to be 18 19 years old without having seen a bat i mean i say that i mean loads of people obviously haven't seen a bat but like you've devoted your life to them now like yeah i think you know i was from a middle well working class really family and uh, working class families don't often tend to hang around with hang bats, around with bats. <laughs> or nature was, i was reading an article the other day about how Nature and environmental sciences are a middle-class profession, a predominantly white middle-class profession. And I don't know how to change that as a white middle-class man who's 
barely inside that profession anyway. Well, I've, it bear, I've just change. made up to middle class, so I'm like hanging on there. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. We're delighted to have you. I got a delivery from Waitrose, and I have the Guardian delivered, so there I think go. I'm totally, I'm totally in the middle yeah. class now. There you are. There's no escaping. <laughs> um, so, did you always know you wanted to be middle class? No, that's not a question. Um, so, you grew up in Liverpool. No, I grew up in Birmingham, okay. in Sutton Coalfield in Birmingham. Uh, but my mother died when I was 18 months old, and uh, that caused uh, havoc in my family, basically. My father never really recovered from that. And I've got three older brothers, and they um, they were all kind of... One had left home, mm-hmm. and one was just doing his A-levels, and the other one was... Um, around you know seven or some so so it was a real kind of um shock to the system and um i i was looked after by a number of neighbors and friends and things and then um, my brother my middle brother went up to liverpool to do his law degree and i basically spent most of the summers and other times with him so um i was kind of raised in birmingham and liverpool so i've got a, a huge fondness for both places really but sure. liverpool is a is a definite it has its sense of itself definite sense of itself it's probably the only city in this country that i really don't know at all <laughs> like i've traveled so much for work and yet liverpool is somewhere for whatever reason i've never worked in or traveled to i think i get my sense of humor from from them because it's a you have a sense of humor i do they, they're so sarcastic kind of drips off them just <laughs> <laughs> drips off them but um yeah they've got They've got a whole sense of pride and, you know, sense of themselves in Liverpool, which is really brilliant. And it makes you feel at home. They're, they're super, they're really friendly. So I think, you know, they probably wouldn't class me as a, as a, as a, one of theirs. A proper scouse. <laughs> an honorary scouse. Well, not Maybe now you get the Guardian. Scouse. That's not allowed. <laughs> um, so during, what, how, where does, where does biology and animals come into this? If you're moving around between urban metropoli. Mm. Is that the plural of metropolis? Yeah, I think so. I think I think I was really influenced by a a really big park we have in in Birmingham called Sutton Park. And it's not just like a little park. It's an old hunting ground of Henry VIII. And it's really, it's massive. And, um, you know, my father and I spent a lot of time in there walking around. So I think that was, that looking back, that must have been one of the influences. But also just films and David Attenborough movies and he's got a lot to answer for. He has he? got a lot to answer for. So I think it was that really. I, I can't. I have this kind of sense of adventure, and want, wanted to do exciting things. And because I was the only girl, and my mother had died, my father was determined to wrap me up in cotton wool. Sure. And I was determined not to be wrapped up in. There's cotton There's nothing wool. like being told what you can't be to make you become said thing. So <laughs> I remember after I finished my degree, he was. Um, and that was in I, Leeds. That was in Leeds. Yeah, I I, um, <laughs> I saw this advert to go to Antarctica. Okay. I was like totally going there, and I which is the that, one place bats aren't. Yeah, but then I, I it did say uh, you know I think it just it just opened up to women because you know they can apparently women can go to Antarctica. <laughs> Crazy. Who knew? Who knew? So it just opened Speaking up to Speaking of which, women. there's a wonderful Ursula Le Guin short story about a female expedition to the South Pole. Uh, it's fictional. I that. But it gets that they get there before the men do. 
because they, they work together. Planned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, I said to him, oh, I've applied for this. He's like, why would you ever want to go there? I was like, that's such a weird attitude. I don't get that. <laughs> why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to go there? They've got penguins. <laughs> and I, when in my second year at uni, I, uh, uh, I heard that there was an expedition going to Borneo. Did you I, go to Antarctica, though? No, no I just didn't applied. get a job. Ah. My friend got it, I think. She was the first woman on Bird Island to overwinter. <laughs> you still friends with her, or was that it? Was that the death now? <laughs> still friends with her. Um, yeah. So yeah, in my second year, there was a whole kind of. Uh, I heard that there was a. I was still determined to be, you know, Indiana Jones, and mm-hmm. there weren't too many opportunities. I, I heard that someone had a, a research center in the middle of Borneo, mm-hmm. and that, and like the middle of Borneo, sounded very exotic, and so I. I kind of raised some money to go um, and I went with someone else from, from Leeds but we joined this big expedition that was going so it was about 20 of us okay. so there's loads of people from Cambridge and loads of people from Stirling and we all met at Heathrow and uh, that changed my life in some ways because it was my first exposure to a developing country sure. low income country and um what were you there to study? Uh, well, we just made up some random research project. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it was a undergraduate research project. Sure. So it was uh, a jolly. There was no <laughs> serious stuff about deforestation. Uh, anyway, um, we were all doing different things, and um, we all met at the airport. And the Cambridge guys had shaved their heads for the expedition, so. It just kind of set the tone, really. It was a really amazing trip, and um, it took us three weeks to get to the camp because uh-huh. it was so um, so remote. Probably you could just fly there in an hour now, but it was um, you know tiny, tiny, uh, tiny rivers, and you you flew into Jakarta and then you flew to Banjarmasin and then you got these Mississippi liners up to the river and then it got too narrow so you had to get these narrow boats and then they were, they were like those rapids so you had to take the boat off the river port it round and then put it back on the ri- it was crazy that sounds amazing it was amazing how long were you there for? I think we were there for three or four months in the end wow it was really great and then um, the camp manager fell ill because he got dengue, he got cere- cerebral dengue fever. Okay. So for some reason, they put me in charge of the radio. Just <laughs> dreadful, <laughs> dreadful idea. So I, <laughs> I, so somebody else was coming up from downstream and so you had to radio ahead to get the porter to get down to the river to get to the little village and then swap boats. Uh-huh. So I was totally forgot, left him left the new camp manager like on the side by the the village for a couple of days but yeah so it wasn't i was taken off radio duty <laughs> <laughs> but that was really fun it's like uh kate jones over <laughs> we know it's uk go away kate have you got anything important to say it was brilliant and then the cambridge boys had gone off to this other they couldn't they decided they couldn't stand us <laughs> they'd gone off some of these people are now very famous, I just want to say. Sure. <laughs> just nameless. They know nameless. Who they are. Have they grown their hair back since? They ha- well, actually, some of it, they've gone bald, so it's kind of gone down the other way. But um, they, uh, they went off to this other more remote camp because it wasn't hardcore enough. 
Boys. Boys. <laughs> so they, they kept radioing in. So we... Hey, they, guys, they, hey guys, like, okay, how you doing? What have you got? So honestly, it caused like this massive rift because they were talking about... They were pretending that they got loads of food and like things on expedition in a, a remote place, things come down to food and sure. your bowel movements. That's the two things that you ever talk about. I mean, it sounds pretty grim, but that is it. And so they kept showing off about how much food they had and they were lying really, but they were just showing off on the radio. Mm-hmm. So we made a we made a huge trick on them to say that um, half of us were gonna come and join them the next day. And they were just, they came up with the most crap excuses you've ever heard on the radio. And we were just laughing a lot. Um, Sounds really petty now, that. (laughs) (laughs) All these things become formative and make us who we are today. (laughs) Um, What's your most enduring memory from, enduring memory even, from from Borneo? Enduring memory, I think um, being the only Western person in some of these remote villages was 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 quite extraordinary because they hadn't really seen too many too many western people before and uh, they have all these floating villages which are you know completely precarious but they're all along the the river and just how amazing the rainforest is and how majestic it is and um how often quite quiet it is, it's like rainforest you'd think would be like packed full of animals, but they are, it's just that, mm. you know, it's quite quiet when you walk in there. You're the only person I've ever heard describe a rainforest as quiet. I mean, I've only been in a couple, but it's the noise of the insects that are just incessant, and especially at night time. Yeah, I mean, at, at night it is crazy, um, but it is quite, um, awe, it's, it's awe-inspiring and and a, and a little bit frightening as well, actually, because it's it's kind of totally wild. And do you like being frightened? I do. I do like being frightened because clearly I like having adventures, so I do quite like that. But there were loads of leeches as well, like, you know, that just land on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, the spiders and the ants were just enormous. It was brilliant. This is still pre-bats. You're a you haven't met the bat the bat guy no i had met the bat guy but i couldn't get a bat project together okay because um kind of the those early days we hadn't the 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 acoustic detectors that you use to pick up their ultrasonic calls were really expensive and so um nobody was going to give somebody who's going to go to bought in the middle of borneo on rivers a detector and also it requires quite a lot of training to put these mist nets up to catch bats. So I would have loved to do, do one on bats, but I just didn't have the expertise all the time. So um, yeah, it was. Um, I didn't really get into bats until a bit a bit later on. So is this around the PhD time? Because yeah. your PhD was in the evolution of bat life histories. Yeah, I mean, I showed up at the interview and they wanted to do it on. It's a theoretical PhD on patterns of life basically is it's like there's a whole area of comparative biology that look at how fast in terms of um, how long things live how many offspring they have and how they're adapted to their environment and there's a whole field of comparative biology that looks at at how things have co-evolved with each other Mm -hmm. so you can live fast or and die young or live a long time and reproduce slowly and those kinds of equations of life. And bats deny this, as far as I'm aware. They can live up for 40 years, which they shouldn't for something their size. Yeah, so I, when I pitched up at the interview and they were saying, well, what do you want to do it on? 
I was like, well, bats sound really cool because I, I knew that they were a bit odd. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guys I was doing a PhD with were a kind of primatologists, so they were very focused on primates. And so I think I kind of got the weird factor and got the job. So <laughs> take that weird girl. Weird girl. So yeah. So and they bats just do incredibly weird things. They're just they're extraordinary. They really are extraordinary, and they don't fit any of these equations. They, they kind of break the rules in lots and lots of different ways. So they're, they're just totally unusual mammals. Before we sink into bats, because I think we're going to sink into bats imminently, the two things that I know about you from my stalking, hmm. one of them is that you were one of the first people to collate an evolutionary tree for all of the planet's mammals. And secondly, one in five of all mammal species worldwide are bats. So did you rig it? Did you fix the mammalian evolutionary life tree to make bats seem more important than they are oh i wish i'd thought of that <laughs> i wish i had thought of that but no like there's a whole um there's a whole kind of book of mammal names so you think you know what you know the species of mammal you think where do these names come from and uh, actually what happens is that someone goes on an expedition or somebody is doing something in a local area and they find a an individual mm -hmm. And say you're in a Victorian naturalist, for example. I, I, I could play one of those. I think you could, actually. Thank you. Um, you would find something, and then you'd look at it and go, OK, well, that uh, could be a new species, but I don't know. And so you take it back to the museum, and you look at the holotype, mm -hmm. which is the original individual that that species has given, been given a name to. And so you compare it to that and then just imagine that on a huge scale that every single thing is compared to that holotype. And if it's re it is really different, and nowadays we can see it if it's different from DNA, sure. gets given another name. So this is a whole compendium of names and there are people in charge of these databases of names. But like national collections, normally it's one person is in charge of rowan trees, another person is in charge of chrysanthemums no one had ever thought about smashing this all together and making one giant tree. Well, um, the, the tree thing, I think the names thing is, is, you know, everybody has been putting these names together. That's the kind of backbone sure. of, of taxonomy uh, as we know it. And um, the person who was in charge of, of mammals uh, were Deanne Reader and Don Wilson, right? So there's these books called Wilson and Reader 2000 and whatever with all the names and the person who's in charge of the bats was Carl Koopman and then got taken over by Nancy Simmons so they're the bat people okay so this is a long tradition of these names and these names change as people find new species but then and there are loads of them well there's over 6,000 species of, of mammals but actually that's quite a, a tiny number when you compare it to beetles insects. or insects or plants you know plants are crazy Anyway, nobody, everybody had been doing these phylogenies, you know, of, of evolutionary trees and so how one species is related to another. So the taxonomy kind of alludes to it, but it doesn't really go into that much detail. It just says it's in this genera, sure. in this genus or in this family or this order. But nobody knows the relationships between. And if you're trying to look at um, 
comparatively across different species with the life histories and how weird things are you can't tell if it's weird if you don't know what these other things are doing you need the tree you need to understand how they're related evolutionarily yeah. to each other nothing evolves on its own there's always some reason for it to go down yes that route. so if, if you're trying to compare across different species you need to understand this tree and there wasn't one tree um, and everybody had been doing it piecemeal uh, like you said like one person had been doing one little family or what a few species and so we put we we had a, a big consortium of us and um well the beginning i did all the bats and then we thought well let's do everything and so there was a big group of us that got together How and long did this take about six years because it's quite because what you had to do is is look at the the original well the data that we have on gen bank for the gene sequences but mm -hmm. also all the published relationships between species as well so we put it all together so our kind of knowledge our best guess of how things are related to each other and that was the largest tree that has ever been done like that and still is no no they've like they've computing computing is so advanced now that um you know they've, they've got huge amounts of, of of computing power to do it but that was one of the biggest trees this, well, it was the biggest tree at the time is this what you won the leverhume award for um, I think the Leverhulme Award was more of a kind of um, career, a recognition of the, my career today, which was not just this kind of big evolutionary comparative stuff, but also um, working with citizen scientists and starting up monitoring programs in new ways and using acoustics to monitor species and developing new tools to do that. So I think it was a recognition of all of that work rather than just the big tree, but that was quite cool. And I'm right in thinking you used the money for that to go into another project of bat echolocation in Transylvania? Yeah, I I was all... Bat, before we go into Transylvania and bats, because everyone wants to do this, I'm gonna go down a different bat route first. <laughs> so I've, I've got all my notes, I'm ready to go. Um, I'm gonna ask you what your favorite bat is but I'm going to give you my four favourite bats first. Right. And I'm going to see if you approve of my choices of favourite bats. Okay. So Shoot. my my first favourite bat is the Greater Notule Bat, a.k.a. the Nyctalus lasiopterus, which is the biggest bat in Europe, lives off insects in the summer, but during the autumn and spring, it turns Eat the attention birds. to songbirds as they migrate through awesome. at night time to avoid falcons. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's really right, cool. I approve that. And they discovered that they would take them out of the air, like in flight and take these awesome songbirds think they're clever bats are cleverer fact okay that's bat number one bat number two the Asurian tube nose bat which other oh, than yeah. the polar bear is the only other mammal to hibernate in snow covered dens awesome that's very cool that is cool um brazilian free-tailed bat fastest, fastest bat, bat fastest flying thing faster than a swift at 160 kilometers an hour in awesome. horizontal flight. I approve. Awesome. Yeah. And Hardwick's woolly bat, which uses a pitcher plant as its roost, but has a symbiotic relationship with the pitcher plant, where the pitcher plant uses its poo as natural nitrogen-rich fertilizer. So I've only got one question okay. about that. How come you've got four and I get <laughs> one? Okay, give me your four favorite bats. <laughs> I would say that I'd like to go for the Honduran white bat, okay. which looks like a um, fluffy ball of cotton wool. 
with... Okay, so your dad wanted you kept in cotton wool as a kid, <laughs> and your first favourite bat it's, is it's a cotton wool... Your dad reach. got what he wanted. It's a reach. It's, you're reaching there. <laughs> it's got a little yellow nose, and it lives in monogamous little groups, families, and it, it creates its own little roost by hiding under a banana tree, and it snips the the veins so that it folds over into a little tent it's called a tent making bat that's so cool. cute they look like little candy in that i've got some juggling balls of them actually <laughs> awesome next one is fisherman bat okay which uh, is or a bulldog bats either either name but it's really smelly but it eats fish so it smells of rotten fish is it smelly nice. because of its feces is it smelly yeah, I mean, it's the, guano, sorry, the guano and the cave stinks, and it also stinks too. But it has these amazing feet, which have got massive claws on them, so they catch fish from the surface of the water. So it's like an osprey, but it's amazing. the bat equivalent. It's amazing. How big are we talking here? So that's just shy of a metre. Yeah, a wingspan. Wingspan. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Um, bat number three. Three is Centurio Senex. So I want you to look that up and go to images. The wrinkle nose bat. Oh, wow. He looks like he's been in a road traffic accident. <laughs> exactly. He's got a flap of skin underneath his chin that he pulls up over his face. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> You're the bat lady. I don't know, but nobody knows. And he does these little leks, so like he calls for, all the blokes get together and then they make her like these mating calls and then the uh, females come in and go, mm, yeah, I like your wrinkly pouch. I like your wrinkly It looks like, do you remember those toys as a kid, those squidgy faces that you could put your fingers in and like sort of crunch them together? It looks like them. Really grim. But it's also, he's, that's just a very strange face, Bat. Uh, so, so that's then, three. Yeah, then I guess I'm a bit torn here. I think I'm going to have to say Crassianictris thungalongali. I'm not going to try and look for that one. <laughs> it's called the bumblebee bat. Oh, the so tiny one. Tiny. I think I read they're three grams. Two grams. Two grams. That's... As a baby. Mm, cute. That's it. That's the four, if I had to choose. But there's so many. There's one that's got... Um, the tongue so long that it has to it's evolved a space in its body cavity to store it so that when it because it pollinates these uh, look gets nectar from these plants sure. in south america and it's got such a long tongue it can curl it up in its body cavity this is something that people probably don't equate to bats they think of blood sucking and they think of of, of just being weird but they don't think of pollination oh pollination is a really big deal for bats uh, so it can pollinate up to f well latest figures are about 500 species and some really important uh, crops like mangoes and durians like in southeast asia i love durians i hate durians. i got fed durian ice cream when i was in malaysia mm. it was the strangest mm. thing i've ever and they you just every we were we were filming up in the rainforest which is i've one of my most recent bat encounters was filming a night shoot in the middle of um, Cameron Highlands up in the top of the mountainous rainforest of Malaysia. Uh, and it was me and John Hanna looking out over veranda. Yeah, John Hanna. Is he on your list with, with David Attenborough? And... <laughs> Nothing can touch Harrison Ford. Okay. 
I'll let John know. <laughs> um, but we were there, it was a night shoot, so they set up all these huge, big 10K lights to light the thing. Um, and all the bats were going, this is great. The lights are attracting all the insects. And, yeah, the bats were, yeah. and there must have been a thousand, literally thousands of bats <laughs> flying all over us. It was just amazing. It's like that bit in Batman Begins where he activates that thing and he's just swarmed by bats. It was great. Was everyone scared? No. Well, John and I weren't. I think we were just there sort of confused about where we were and why no one spoke English. Um, yeah, so they pollinate agaves, mm-hmm. which uh, tequila. To make tequila, so you couldn't have really a margarita. No margaritas, with, there were no, no bats. bats. What bat? Is it various different bats that pollinate, um, pollinate I think agave? it's mostly long-tongued bat the, the ones with the cavity no it, these are other ones but they they have um, the agave flowers it's got like a funnel shape and um the bat's head fits into the agave flower perfectly like perfectly, a sort of yeah like an active side yeah. of a catalyst it just goes thunk. and then um the bat's head gets covered in pollen and then it flies off to the next one um this is a very scientific question yellow <laughs> what how cute do bats look covered in pollen they must look awesome. They look cute. The, the, the Leptonicturus curiosoe, I think they are called. Okay. Lesser long-tongued bat, something like that. Long-nosed, mm, something like that. Anyway, they're cool. They look cool. They've got little white heads, and then when they're covered in pollen, they go orange. Yeah, awesome. orange. So I've got it down as there are over 1,000. 1,116 no, recognised species. How many wrong. are there now? I think uh, there are over 1,400 I only know this because at the last bat conference, international bat conference, obviously, I don't know why you weren't there, but okay. I I better be invited from here on in. Um, <laughs> I'll be there. there. Was, I'll there be was... there fighting for the for the polar bear bat. There, go on, go on. He's there. He's underneath the snowdrift. At the last bat conference, Nancy Simmons, who's the keeper of bat names, did she have a big key? Just, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> she had a t-shirt on. Because people keep asking how many bats there are. Uh-huh. And she had it written on. She said 1,401 or something. But I think since then, that was last year, there's more. So people. Why are there so many? Why are there so many? That's a very meta question. I think that they have successfully invaded quite a good niche, which is dusk and in the night and dawn and they've evolved echolocation to figure their way around mm-hmm. and I think that's ex- over that's exploited a whole new niche for them that birds were already there and present in in the day and and dusk so you can see like the swifts up here mm-hmm. disappear and then the bats come out so you know they, they have this kind of overlap a bit of overlap and then these niches but why did no other kind of creature evolve to use night time or dusk time in in the same way um well you would uh, there is an argument and uh, uh, probably good evidence to show that all mammals are originally nocturnal so all mammals are started off as a nocturnal nocturnal things and they were probably pushed out by dinosaurs and then aka birds mm-hmm. so Mammals started off as nocturnal and they've evolved into the daytime Why do we think that? Um, we I know the whole we all come from the sea thing. I didn't realise we all came from the sea into the night time. I mean, that's great. 
Um, Can't be wet anymore. Let's let's all just <laughs> turn off the lights, hang out. It's based on. No one wants to see our gills as they de-evolve into lungs. <laughs> it's based on um, our art, like our eyes at the moment are our eyes, our primate eyes, obviously, mm-hmm. and they're adapted to colour. But um, we have architecture in there which betrays our kind of nocturnal ancestry. So it's black and white. It, and also, if you look at the evolutionary tree of mammals and look at the relationships and which, which branched mean? out first and last and you know the timing of that, all the early ones have got uh, eyes which look are, are for black and white vision, okay. are for low light vision and have ad- adapted to that. And you can see their activity patterns now are nocturnal. So it's only when you get uh, across the KT boundary when the dinosaurs went extinct that you get even get some um, orders going into the daytime. So you see a few groups like primates doing that so mammals are nocturnal really so the question was oh yeah i asked you a question why why are there so many bats um i think they you know have evolved flight which makes them um, incredibly um resilient to population crashes because all changes in the landscape mm-hmm. because they can move about they've evolved sophisticated echolocation in many cases which means that they could fly in this canopy. Mm-hmm. Some of them can fly in this canopy without getting confused. So that's incredible feat, right? Because they're more agile than birds. Yeah, think? I mean, well, some most yeah, birds depends on what bat, but yeah. Sure. Um, so I think they they've done that, and they, you know, they've just a huge number of niches that they they eat pollen, fruit, um, insects. insects, other bats, other ber- birds. Blood. other mammals blood you know they've got a huge variety of um of different things that they eat and do and they live everywhere apart from the poles do we think i mean obviously when a group gets so big we normally try and subdivide it so there's the megabats and the microbats is that the only major divide within bats i'm presuming they're sort of more niche ones but are they the main two well funny you should say that um megabats and microbats have been a, a subject of big debate and you're touching on some raw nerves here. Great, let's go down this one. So megabats and microbats were kind of thought to be like these big fruit bats, megabats, and they've got these dog-like faces. Mm-hmm. And they don't echolocate in the same way. Don't echolocate at all. at all. Well, some of them click, but... And they can click with their wings, I read. You can some... Yeah, some of them. But mostly it's from their vocal cords. Um, and then you've got these microbats who all echolocate and live everywhere, do everything. And so there was a big debate about, you know, how to put these all these things together. And there was some. <laughs> that looks heavy. Should we umbrella it? Yeah. Can you? Okay. I get the trolley. Sorry. Oh God. And then the rains came. A little inconvenient on the day, but in retrospect provides us with a perfect point in proceedings at which to take a break. So, 
Until next week, go make yourself a margarita safe in the knowledge that it was brought to you courtesy of a number of long-tongued bats, and then go Google Kate's wrinkle-faced bat, Centurio Senex. And then we will see you in a week's time to tell you why foxes should be called ground bats, how Dracula's immortality is based in scientific fact, loosely, and all the dastardly secrets of the 70 million year long technological warfare that has been silently waging between bats and their nemesis, the moths. So, until next time, thank you for listening. Bye bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.